Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to cover verses 12 through 30. Our context is this. In the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2, we see Paul trying to compare Jesus' humility in emptying himself by becoming a man, becoming incarnate in the likeness of a bondservant. He's using that canonic act of Jesus in order to encourage the Philippians to imitate Jesus and to also be humble. That passage contains the famous kenosis passage of Jesus. And now we go in this section, verses 12 through 30, we're going to see Paul to encourage the Philippians to act as lights in the world. And he's going to have that famous exhortation to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. All right, so now we'll start with verses 12 through 13, Philippians 2. Paul says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, Paul starts out in verse 12 by saying, So then. So why? Why did he say that? Well, He's referring to something that was preceding. We, I'll give you a couple of options. In verse 11, he said, Every knee shall bow to God and every tongue shall confess him as Lord. And maybe he's saying that because of that awesome event, maybe we should bow the knee too. And maybe we should be obedient just as you've always obeyed. Maybe we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling because, hey, we need to fear and tremble as we work out our salvation because after all, all of our knees are going to be bowed to the Lord one day. Or, that's one option, another option that Paul's referring to is Philippians 2.8, a little bit, a few verses previous to verse 11, where Paul says, Being found in appearance as a man, he, Christ, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because Jesus died for us to give us our salvation, well then maybe you should work it out with fear and trembling. I'm not sure what he's referring to then, but either one of those will work, I think. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, and that's obeyed God, not obey Paul, according to John Gill, it could be because you've always obeyed Paul, but I don't think so. I think it's talking about obedient, like Jesus was obedient to death on the cross, and likewise you Philippians have been obedient also, not as in my presence only, but much more now in my absence. While the cat's away, mice will play, but the Philippians weren't like that. Paul the cat was away, and the Philippian mice were not playing. They were being obedient. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what does he mean that was going on while he was absent? Was it his obedience, the obedience of the Philippians? Or was he saying, in the future, while I'm gone, I want you to work out your salvation without me having to crack the whip over you? It's hard to say. They could go either way. Now, when Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling... He doesn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He says work out your salvation. We cannot work for our salvation because we don't have the ability to work for our salvation. Only Jesus can provide that salvation as a matter of free grace. So now what Paul is talking about is the sanctification process of the Philippians' lives. They're supposed to do that with fear and trembling. In other words, with great concern which I wish that more Christians would do. There are too many Christians who say a nice little sinner's prayer and then go out and live like hell for a while, if they ever do start getting serious with God. Or maybe not live like hell, but maybe live a life of sort of got one foot in and one foot out. Maybe I go to church once every two months and I believe in God, but I'm not going to really change my lifestyle because I'm too busy chasing money. 
No, that's not our attitude towards sanctification. That's not the way it should be. It should be done with fear and trembling because it's God who is at work in you. And God's a serious, he's serious. Now, you will often hear Reformed theologians who are big on this verse. They're big on working to keep the law of Moses, the moral law of Moses, as they call it, by slicing the law up and forgetting the judicial and ceremonial aspects of the law and saying, but that morality, we've got to work it out. We can't be passive. Now, they're really good about being passive in justification because we can't do anything to gain our justification and hear here here for that that's good but now they say work out your salvation with fear and trembling now to be sure because we have the holy spirit in our lives our situation is now synergistic and not monergistic we work together with god our justification is monergistic only one person works and that's god we can't but now that we're saved and have the holy spirit the holy spirit can work and we can work and we can work together no problem so far. The problem is, in my opinion, is that reform preachers emphasize that so much, trying to prove that we have to work. We've got to strive. We can't be passive. They tend to underemphasize the next verse 13. Work in verse 12 and verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. So in other words, if you're going to be working, it's God doing the work inside of you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I have isolated four other verses like this, which unfortunately I don't have in front of me, but there are four other verses like this where Paul says to work. And immediately, as soon as he says it, in every one of those instances, immediately, as soon as he says it, in every one of those instances, he immediately says, but it's not you that's working, it's God that's working. And here's a classic example of it right here. Now, to will and to work, those are infinitives. Who's doing the will and the work? Is it God willing and working for his good pleasure in you, or is it you willing to work for God with God in you? Well, since it's synergism and since it's both both agents working, both the individual Christian and God, I don't think it makes much difference. Because in either way you look at it, whether it's you working or God working, if it's God working, he's not working alone, you're cooperating with him. If it's you working, well... It's obviously not you working by yourself. It's God working with you. So either way, we need to emphasize that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, as Jesus said in John 15, in that wonderful parable of the vine and the abiding in the vine. It's well, uh, We can do nothing apart from Jesus, nothing, because it's God who works in us. That's where the emphasis should be, because if God is working in us, we don't need to worry about passivity. I mean, you know, this is the so-called Keswick doctrine, which the Reformers hate so much. They say that, People that let go and let God and always talking about God working in them end up being passive, mystics, quietists, sitting around contemplating their navels. Yeah, like Hudson Taylor, he believed it. Amy Carmichael, two of the best missionaries you ever saw in your life. Now you notice this willing, that means you want to do it, and that's that's key. You want to do it. When you're doing God's work and you're enjoying doing it because you want to do it, now you that's how you know you're not under the law and you're doing it because you got to do it. It's a big difference. Let's talk about, let me give you a quote from Adam Clark talking about willing to do for God's good pleasure. Not for yours, of course, but for God's good pleasure. Here's the quote from Adam Clark. The power to will and the power to act must necessarily come from God, who is the author both of the soul and body and of all their powers and energies. But the act of volition and the act of working come from the man. God gives power to will, man wills through that power. God gives power to act and man acts through that power. Without the power to will, man can will nothing. Without the power to work, man can do nothing. 
God neither wills for man nor works in man's stead, but he furnishes him with power to do both. He is therefore accountable to God for these powers. Now that's an Arminian's take on it, but that's not too far off, I would say, because he, he shows that both God and man are working. He says, man wills, God works. He kind of splits out the duties a little bit. I, I would more or less say that God wills too. He's, God says, this is what I want, and he encourages us Christians to want the same thing that he wants as we have the mind of Christ. So I might not agree totally with Adam Clark, but he, he brings out the point that it's both God and us working in the Christian's life for God's good pleasure. To make him happy, make you happy too. Philippians 2, verses 14 through 16. Oh, let me back up a minute. Let me let me point up the word work and to work for his good pleasure. Now, that's the word that keeps us from being passive in case we have inclinations to that. Because just because one has the power to work out one's salvation, that doesn't mean one will work out the salvation. That's why Paul exhorts, do it, work. Work on your salvation, but again, not by the, your flesh, not by the strength of your own power, but by God working in you, and then you will become more, more and more holy, transformed from image to image as you are being conformed to your final glorified state, which is the image of Christ, the perfect image of Christ. Philippians 2, 14 through 16, Paul continues, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain now Paul says do all things without grumbling or disputing he's obviously referring to foolish disputes because Paul found himself in disputes for good cause all the time he was constantly disputing people so that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about griping over the color of the carpet, except they didn't have church buildings and they didn't have carpets. But I'm sure they had the equivalent. People arguing over dumb things that don't amount to a hill of beans of difference. You know, just put up with it. You know, the air conditioner's too cold. Wear a sweater. So that you are proved to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, blameless and innocent, children of God, lights in the world. Well, he uses that phrase, perverse generation, and that means that he was probably referring to the Jew, Jews, the unbelieving Jews who persecuted the Christians so often. Now, I've always read that verse referring to the, everybody in the world, but I really do think it's referring to Jews here, probably, because that perverse, that phrase, perverse generation, is the same terminology Jesus used to refer to unbelieving Jews. Adam Clark agrees with him here. He says, quote, probably referring to the Jews who were the chief opponents and the most virulent enemies which the Christian church had. Here's some scriptures where that phrase is used, Deuteronomy 32, 5. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Using the King James here, they, the they is the Jews, the perverse and crooked generation. Matthew, a lot of people point out that the authenticity of the Old Testament is such that the divine authors will criticize the Jews, when they themselves are the ones that are, the, the, they are the ones that are perpetrating the existence of the Old Testament. They are the ones who own the oracles of God, the Old Testament, and yet they, those same oracles criticize them constantly for being sinners. That makes it unique in the annals of world religious literature. Matthew 17, 17. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? Perverse means crooked, 
screwed up, deviant from normal. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you with you? Bring him hither to me. Okay, so, perverse generation, that does sound like it's the Jews that the Philippians are supposed to be lights in the middle of. Paul says that these Philippians are holding fast. KGV says holding forth. NIV says as you hold out. So there we have an option, optional translation. So here's the option. The KGV says holding forth the word of life. The NIV says as you hold out the word of life. So that, if it's translated that way, that means that the Philippians are preaching the gospel. The NIV marginal note translates it this way, or hold on to the word of life. And the New American Standard Bible says the same thing, hold on to the word of life, which means that the Philippians are being, are persevering and enduring and not backsliding. So either they're witnessing or they're remaining true. Either way, it depends on the translation, Paul is expecting good things of them. He wants them to do good, hold on, to the, hold forth the word of life, or hold on to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. It sounds like to me it's hold on to, because he says in the next phrase, I don't want to be ashamed in the day of Christ. I want you to still be, the, be in the kingdom. In other words, I want you to still... I want to be able to look at God, Jesus when I see him and say, look at here, the Philippian church persevered long after my death and long after my establishment of that church, and they're doing real well. So that means I didn't work with them in vain. It wasn't a waste of my time to start that church. So we'll take that as holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, he would not feel like he had run in vain. He would have reason to glory. He would have reason to be proud, in other words, in the day of Christ. Well, whenever you see that phrase, you constantly have to decide, does it mean final judgment at the end of time, or does it mean AD 70 when Jesus came back to judge Jerusalem and destroy the place, as he says in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse? I don't know what it is here. I don't know if you can tell. I don't think it matters that much. The point is, is Paul wants the Philippians to fly right. We go to Philippians 2, verses 17 through 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, Paul continues, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul's always talking about rejoicing in this letter to the Philippians, even though he's in jail. He says, even if I'm being poured out, even if, when you reuse that expression, that implies that you regard the contingency as likely to happen. So, as Jameson Fawson Brown points out, here's their, their quote, quote, his expectation of release from prison is much fainter than in the epistles to Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, written somewhat earlier from Rome. The appointment of Tigellinus to be Praetorian prefect was probably the cause of this change. In other words, Jameson Fawson and Brown speculate that Paul's house imprisonment got worse. He was thrown in jail, and the situation looked more dire and i get and i and i suppose that you could speculate that this was if you believed in two imprisonments in rome this was the second one and he's about to get killed and so he's talking about being poured out as a drink offering well the problem with that view is in philippians 2:24, which is just seven verses later paul says quote i am confident in the lord that i myself will also come soon so i don't know how you can discern paul's mental calculation as to his odds of getting out by reading his letter here. I'm assuming that being poured out as a drink offering is a reference to his being killed by the Romans. It does sound like that. Blood being poured out even as wine is poured out on the altar in the Old Testament ritual. As in Numbers 15.10, 
and you shall offer as the drink offering one half a hen of wine as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. They'd pour that wine on the flame on the altar and it would boil off. And this is what Paul is saying. They're going to pour out my blood. He's using an extended metaphor here. His blood is the drink offering, or he himself is. Let's say his blood is the drink offering and poured out on what? On what kind of altar? Well, he says the sacrifice, that's the animal that's on the altar. You pour the wine on the animal. And the service of your faith. So he also is talking about the sacrifice involving the priest who's doing the service the Old Testament priests who did the work of sacrifice at the altar. So the Philippians are compared to two things. They're compared to the sacrifice being placed on the altar, and they're compared to the priest performing the sacrifice. And Paul's being poured out for them, for their sacrifice, which they'd done in sacrificing themselves for the gospel, and also for their service in the cause of the gospel, sacrifice and service. Paul is good at using complicated metaphors, and I think that's one. But anyway... The Philippians are sacrificing themselves, they're serving the faith, and Paul is being poured out as a drink offering. He's going to die for them. But even so, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Rejoice that Paul is getting poured out as a drink offering. Rejoice that Paul is about to die. Wow, nothing much I can say about that. That's, that takes supernatural power from the Holy Spirit in order to be able to rejoice in such circumstances. When Paul says that he's being poured out upon the service of your faith, that of there, the NIV translates that as the service coming from your faith. Because the Philippians had faith, they served. Philippians 2, 19-24 reads this way, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now this section here introduces Timothy and Epaphroditus, or it it contains Paul's introduction of Timothy and Epaphroditus, or commendation, I should say, not introduction of Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippians. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interest, not those of Christ Jesus, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Well, the first question I have is, was Paul's hope fulfilled? He hoped to send Timothy to the Philippians shortly? I don't think we know that. I look in five, I think actually seven commentaries, at least Barnes, Ellicott, Cambridge, Bible, Commentary for Schools and Colleges, Benson and John Gill, nothing. So I'm assuming that Timothy never made it, that Paul was just hoping to make it. Or if he did send Timothy later to the Philippians, we don't know about it. Now, Timothy, of course, is well known to us. He's also was well known to the Philippians. He was most probably with Paul on both of Paul's two trips to Philippi, although we can't prove it exactly, but it's pretty strong evidence that he was there. Acts 16, was tells Luke tells us of Paul and Silas establishing the church at Philippi on the second journey. No mention of Timothy was there in Acts 16, but he most probably was, as Albert Barnes says, quote, No mention is made indeed of Timothy as being with Paul at Philippi, but after he had left that city, after Paul had left Philippi and had gone to Berea, which was a hop, skip, and a jump away, where the brethren sent away Paul, it is added, But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. 
From this it is evident that he had accompanied them in their journey and had no doubt with, been with them at Philippi. I think that's a reasonable supposition. Now in Acts 20, Acts 20 doesn't explicitly say Timothy was with Paul at the end of the third journey, but he most probably was. Let me read the relevant passage, Acts 20, verses 4 through 6. He, Paul, was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. This is, Paul is gathering up people there in Macedonia as he's heading back to Jerusalem at the end of the third journey. Now, as they came up from Corinth, he says, These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What happened is they went all the way up to Philippi, get ready to sail across the North Aegean Sea, across the Hellspot, the mouth of the Hellespont over to Troas, and that was Paul and Luke. They held back. The we, we sailed away, so they held back, but the other men, including Timothy, went on ahead. Well, where did they go on ahead from? They probably split off at Philippi. Doesn't say so, but it's, it's reasonable to think that they went on ahead from Philippi, and then Paul and Luke sailed from Philippi. So it's not provable. Most probably, Timothy knew was known by the Philippians, and so that's why Paul is sending Timothy. That was one reason, because he knew the Philippians, but also because he was of kindred spirit, and he was like a child serving his father. He could really trust Timothy. He wanted to know of the Philippians' condition. Paul was always concerned about the condition of his churches. Here's how John Gill puts it, how the gospel stood with them, and they in that whether they held it fast and strove for it, and what ground the false teachers got among them, how the ordinances of the gospel were regarded and attended on by them, with what life and light and liberty and zeal their ministers preached the word, and what success they had to the conversion of sinners and comfort of saints, and how they behaved towards them in honoring, obeying, and submitting to them, and esteeming them highly for their work's sake. What an increase of gifts, grace, and numbers there was among them, and what harmony, love, peace, and concord subsisted between them, and what afflictions and persecutions they endured for the sake of Christ, and with what patience, faith, and cheerfulness they bore them. There's nobody like John Gill that can describe a situation. So in other words, Paul wanted to know how they were doing. He said Paul was like the kindred, that Timothy was like a kindred spirit with him, as John Gill puts it. A kindred spirit is like one soul in two bodies. So there was two bodies, Paul and Timothy, and they had one soul. <laughs> That's pretty close. It's a great metaphor. Paul says in verse 21, they all seek after their own interests. These are those who are preaching out of envy and strife. Mentioned in chapter 1, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice anywhere they're preaching Christ, even though they're in pretense and they're, they're jealous of Paul. All, does that mean each and every one, or does it mean many, the greater part? That word is ambiguous. You can look it up. I've done it many times. You can't build a lot of theology on all, the word all. All does not always mean all, but I think here he's talking about almost every last one of them. They're not looking after Jesus' interests, but their own interests. They want to be big shot. It's just amazing to me how people can latch onto the gospel and turn something beautiful into something sordid and selfish and worldly. But Timothy wasn't like that. Verse 22, you know of his proven worth. Proven means he's been tested, and he's come out passing the test. John Gill says of the word proven, when he was among them with the apostle at his first preaching the gospel to them, to the conversion, that was on the first journey, when he, Paul picked him up at Dirt Lystra, 
to the conversion of Lydia, that's in this, on the second journey at Philippi, and of the jailer of Philippi and of their household. He, he had proven, Timothy had proven himself with Paul. In fact, what I did was I've, I've shown that Timothy had proven himself to Paul on the first journey, the second journey, and the third journey. The first journey, Acts 16, 1 through 4. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Well spoken of. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, and so forth. So Paul picked him up because why? Because he was well spoken of in those parts. So already Timothy had a good reputation when Paul picked him up. I said Lystra, it says Derby or Lystra. Those are two towns close to one another in Central Asia Minor. Doesn't matter. The point is, is that Paul got somebody of proven character on his first journey, Timothy. And on his second journey, in Acts 17:10, we read this: The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. So Paul, so Timothy was with. Paul at Berea, that's again on the second journey. And on the third journey, in 1 Corinthians 16:10, we read this. Paul has sent Timothy out to see the Corinthians, check on them. They were having a lot of trouble. Paul says this, if Timothy comes, he says this to the Corinthians, if Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he is doing the Lord's work just as I am. So here we have somebody who is like a child working for his father, who is a kindred spirit of proven character, doing the Lord's work, and who had good report with the brethren. That's Timothy, folks. He was a good guy. Paul would really appreciate somebody like Timothy because apostles were constantly being abandoned in their hard work by people who just didn't want to stick it out with them. Let me give you an example of that. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says this to Timothy, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas deserted him. How about John in 3 John 1.9? I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. So apostle, and how about in the Corinthian church? All those false teachers, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and all these people that are just giving Paul nothing but grief. The people who said Paul was short and bald, they didn't actually say that. They said his appearance was weak, his voice was weak. On and on and on, Paul not only got opposition from the Jews and the Romans, he got opposition from false teachers all the time and false apostles. But not Timothy. Timothy stuck with him to the bitter end, all the way from the first journey to the third journey to the imprisonment at Rome. Timothy was there with Paul. Now notice in verse 23, Paul says he wants to see how things, how things go with me. He says, I hope to send him, Timothy, immediately to see you, Philippians, as soon as I see how things go with me. In other words, he's probably saying to see whether they kill me or whether they let me out of jail, whether they let me stay in jail. Verse 24, he says, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. That's the verse I quoted immediately to show that when Paul says he's being poured out as a drink offering, well, does that mean that he thinks he's about to die and that he's showing doubt that he's going to come? Well, here he says, I trust in the Lord that I'll be coming shortly. I believe I will. Is that the same thing as saying I know I will? And he, sh he shows some diffidence and doubt here when he says, I'm going to see how things go with me. And when I do, then I'll send Timothy to you. So you see, Paul is planning. He's, he's not a... 
he is not a prophet who sees Jesus like he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus all the time. He has to make plans as a human being. He doesn't know how events are going to shake out. However, he has perfect confidence that however things shake out, Jesus is always going to be with him. That's a perfect application for us. You don't know the future. And any Christian that says he knows the future from beginning to end is, is an idiot. Nobody knows that. I've never met anybody who claimed that. Even prophets. Prophets don't claim that. Even the Old Testament prophets had to search diligently to see what these things meant. They got a revelation, but it was it was a revelation in part, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. We don't know. We see through a, in, in a glass dimly. Even prophets do. So And apostles, too. He didn't know what was going to happen. Here's an application of what I just said. We can have plans and dreams, but we should never be disappointed and surprised if they don't come true because usually God's plans are a whole lot different than ours. I would say that's probably 100% of every Christian's testimony that you will ever hear. You can ask them, and they will say, well, yeah, I, I sure never thought it was going to turn out like this. The future is in God's hands, not ours. We go now to verses 25 through 30, and we'll finish up this chapter. Paul continues, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So he was planning to send Timothy, but he was sending Epaphroditus, who's going to bring the letter of the Philippians to the Philippians. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. I like that term, fellow worker. The Chinese always call their apostolic work team people that work on those teams that go around spreading the gospel. They call them co-workers, my co-worker. They don't call them apostles. They don't, in fact, they don't even call the preachers in the Well, sometimes they'll call the preachers pastors, the leaders in the church. They, they might call them. They don't actually, they, when they talk in English, they call them shepherds. But they use that word co-worker a lot. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Now, Epaphroditus is Paul's spiritual brother, of course. He ministered, he's your messenger, which means he sent messages from the Philippians, as Paul is sending the letter of Philippians back to the Philippians. And Epaphroditus was also minister to Paul's needs. There's a couple of options what that Paul's need was. John Gill suggests his personal financial need in prison, which I'm sure that's what it is. Epaphroditus carried the Philippians' money to Paul while he was in jail. That means the Philippians more than once ministered to him, sent him money when he was in Thessalonica, and here they sent money to him when he was in jail. They looked after their apostle. They cared for him. John Gill suggests another need Paul might have had, the need for the, to preach the gospel in Rome. It's kind of hard for Paul to do that while he's in, under house arrest or in jail, depending on which it was, whatever his situation was. And so Epaphroditus went out and preached for him, maybe. Well, maybe that's a nice suggestion. I don't think it's true. I think he's talking about money here. Verse 26, because he, Epaphroditus, was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick because I thought it was necessary to send Epaphroditus. Why? Because he was longing for you. In other words, Epaphroditus got homesick and Paul wanted to send him back. He was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He, Epaphroditus wasn't distressed over being sick. He was distressed because other people were worried about him being sick. Sounds like he's a good guy too. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. Now we see it was not just an ordinary sickness. It was a near fatal sickness. But God had mercy on him. Now the question is, is how did God have mercy on him? Did God miraculously cure Epaphroditus, or did God just allow natural processes to heal Epaphroditus? Well, 
I don't think it amounts to a hill of beans one way or the other. The point is, it, whether it was providentially through natural means or whether it was supernaturally through supernatural means, who cares? If you're Epaphroditus, you're well in either case. Now, it's interesting that I found a commentator, Clark, quoting a Dr. Paley, who says that it's very obvious that Epaphroditus was healed naturally. I don't think it's obvious at all. I don't think you can tell. But let, let me read this. Quote, in this passage, says Dr. Paley, no intimation is given that the recovery of Epaphroditus was miraculous. It is plainly spoken of as a natural event. Plainly spoken of? Let me read it again. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. That's beyond the point of equivocation and doubt that that's talking about natural healing processes? Why could it not just mean that why could it not also mean that God had mercy on him by supernatural healing? The text is totally silent on the point, and yet Dr. Pully says it's obvious that it was a natural healing. So I think he's wrong as he could be. Continuing with Paley's quote, this instance, together with that in the second epistle to Timothy, Trophimus I have left at Miletus sick, affords a proof that the power of performing cures and by parity of reason of working other miracles was a power which only visited the apostles occasionally and did not at all depend upon their own will. Now, that's something I totally agree with that Dr. Paley says. The apostles were not genies. They couldn't go around waving a magic wand and healing everybody at the, all at once. If Paul's eyesight was bad in Galatians, that's a speculation. Well, he didn't heal them. He didn't heal. Well, if he healed Epaphroditus, he waited till he got sick to the point of death before he did it. Why would he wait so long? And Trophus he's left at Miletus sick. That proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the apostles, even though they could do miracles and did miracles, a lot of times they weren't automatic. Continuing on with Paley's quote, Paul undoubtedly would have healed Epaphroditus if he could, nor would he have left Trophus at Miletus sick had the power of working cures awaited his disposal. And then Paley goes on to say, had this epistle been a forgery, forgery on this occasion would not have spared a miracle, much less would it have introduced St. Paul professing the utmost anxiety for the safety of his friend, yet acknowledging himself unable to help him, which he does almost expressly in the case of Trophimus. Him have I left sick, and virtually in, and virtually in the passage before us, in which he facilitates himself on the recovery of Epaphroditus in terms which almost exclude the supposition of any supernatural means being used to effect it. Well, it's true that it took a while for Epaphroditus to get healed and he almost died, but that doesn't mean that God could have let him get sicker and sicker and then right at the point of death he could have said, okay, I'm going to supernaturally heal you. You know, Dr. Paley speaks truth here, but he, he, his truth should not be used to establish an opposite falsehood that we should never pray for those who are sick, which is unfortunately what people who like Dr. Paley and people who follow them, that's the next thing you hear is, oh no. We can't be like a faith healer. We can't pray for somebody that's sick because that would be testing God. Well, let me ask you something. You pray for loved ones, right? Lost ones that are lost. Loved ones that are lost. Do you know whether they're in the elect or not? No, you don't. You don't know what the outcome's going to be, but you pray for them anyway, don't you? I don't know whether somebody that I pray for is going to get sick or not, but I'm going to pray for them anyway. And by the way, this idea that Paul could not turn on healing like a light switch, he could not wave a magic wand and have instant healing, this really hurts cessationists. I had a cessationist answer my YouTube, one of my YouTube videos on cessationism, and he tried to make a contrast between current day quote unquote faith healers, the pejorative term, people who believe in healing, and early apostles. He said the early apostles could heal anytime they wanted to because they had the gift of healing, but modern day faith healers can't heal at will because there's people they pray for that don't get well. And my response was, Trophimus. I didn't mention Epaphroditus here. I should have. 
But that's my answer is, oh, really? So we're different than the apostles. Here are the apostles who were supposed to be working spiritual gifts before they died out, according to cessationists. They can't heal everybody at will, so now you're going to put a standard on quote-unquote faith healers in the New Testament to say they've got to heal everybody all at once with no exception 100%, and if they don't, therefore they're fakes and frauds? Come on. It's nonsense. Yeah, I don't like the fake faith healers either, my friends, but I don't like fake evangelists either. I believe in evangelism, and I believe in praying for the sick. What does Paul say? If anyone among you is sick, take him to the elders. Oh, that died out in the first century. We can't take him to the elders anymore and pray for the sick. Praying for the sick ought to be something that you do routinely, because I'm telling you, there are so many people sick in this world. Listen to prayer requests at any church you go to. How many of them are related to sickness, folks? And the more you realize how what a curse on mankind sickness is, the more you'll start praying and quit griping about fake faith healers. Paul says in verse 27 that he was so glad that Epaphroditus had mercy, that God had mercy on Epaphroditus and let him live so that Paul would not have sorrow upon sorrow. What two sorrows is he talking about? Sorrow upon sorrow. Option one. This is mentioned by John Gill and Adam Clark. Epaphroditus' death would have added to the sorrow of Paul's bonds. He would have sorrow and sorrow. I've got two sorrows, Paul would say. I'm in prison, and now Epaphroditus has died on me. Oh, thank God that didn't happen. Now, notice here that, well, let me, I'll take that up later. The second sorrow, a second option as to what the, Paul's two sorrows were, this is Adam Clark's suggestion. I think it was Clark who said this. The sorrow of Epaphroditus' death would have been added to the sorrow that Paul endured because Epaphroditus was sick. So sorrow on sorrow, he was sorry that Epaphroditus got sick, and then he was he would be sorry that Epaphroditus was dead. Well, whatever it was, Paul would have been pretty sad if Epaphroditus died. Now notice he says sorrow on sorrow. He admits that he had some sorrow there in prison. Yet in Philippians 1.4, he says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. That proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that joy is not incompatible with sorrow. So when we have sorrow, we need to remember joy is possible. Joy is possible. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. We can have joy at the same time we sorrow. That to me is an awesome thing when you think about it. Paul says in verse 28, Therefore I have sent him, Epaphroditus, all the more eagerly, so that when you, you Philippians, see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Paul's obviously concerned about the Philippians because they're concerned about Epaphroditus. I suspect that's why he was concerned about him, and sending the well Epaphroditus to see the Philippians would alleviate the Philippians' worry, and then that would alleviate Paul's concern about how about their worry, his concern about how they were feeling. Now, whenever I see when Paul says he's concerned, and this happens in several places in his letters, I wonder how his concern, the NASB has concern, his concern for them, the NIV has so that I will be have less anxiety. The NIV has anxiety about you. Anxiety is worry. Well, concern and worry are close together semantically, and I often wonder how Paul, having less anxiety or less concern, how that squares with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6:25. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus clearly says we're not supposed to worry about your life. But Paul was worried about the Philippians, at least according to the NIV translation. Well, how do you deal with that? These are all my options. I can't find any commentator that deals with this, so I'm going to have to speculate. Could be that Paul was sinning. 
Jesus said, don't worry, and Paul worried. So he just confessed he's sinning. But remember now, just because he sinned, that doesn't have anything to do with inerrancy because inerrancy says that Paul's writings were inspired, not by his attitudes, not his attitudes and his actions. Or another option could be there's nothing wrong to care about somebody as long as you trust God to take care of them. In other words, I'm concerned for you. I care for you. I'm not worried about you. I know that God's going to take care of you, but I am still focusing my care and attention on you. I really think that's the answer. I don't think Paul was sinning here. Another option is is to note that concern does not exactly equate to be worried about. To be concerned is to focus one's attention on something, and you can do that without having anxiety about the result. In verse 29, Paul says, Receive him, receive Epaphroditus then in the Lord with all joy. Receive Epaphroditus in the Lord. John Gill says that should mean for the Lord. Receive Epaphroditus for the Lord, for the sake of the Lord. For the sake of the Lord's ministry and a gospel and for the sake of the advance of the gospel. These prepositions are hard to translate. That's Gill's idea, one idea. And Gill says another way it can be translated is receive Epaphroditus in the name of the Lord. In other words, Philippians, please act like Jesus would act if Jesus himself were receiving Epaphroditus. Receive Epaphroditus in the name of the Lord. Receive Epaphroditus as Jesus would receive Epaphroditus. Or receive Epaphroditus for the sake of the Lord for the purpose of advancing the Lord's interest. Either way is okay. Verse 30, Paul says in 29, Receive him in the Lord, verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. He came close to death, risking his life. How? Well, here's one option. He overworked himself so much that he got seriously sick. That makes sense because Paul's already mentioned that he'd been, he was sick unto death already, so... That would be how he would risk his life by working himself so bad. The problem with that is you can get sick unto death without overworking too, so that's just a speculation. Could be he risked his life by boldly preaching the gospel, causing either the Jews or the Romans to get upset with him. So we'll have to say we don't know exactly how Epaphroditus risked his life, but he was gutsy. And he was risking his life not only in general to advance the cause of Christ, he was risking his life for Paul because he risked his life to complete what was deficient in your, the Philippians' service to me, to Paul. Well, does that mean that the Philippians were deficient because they didn't want to help Paul and Epaphroditus did want to help Paul and so Epaphroditus helped Paul by giving, by giving money when the Philippians didn't want to? No, it means that the Philippians lacked the opportunity to help Paul the way the Philippians wanted to. But if Epaphroditus took care of that because he carried that money from Philippi to Paul, so whatever was deficient in the Philippian service to Paul, either because they didn't have the opportunity to get the money to Paul, well, that's probably what it was. That's probably why their service was deficient. They just weren't able to help Paul out. But but Epaphroditus risked his life to come to Rome to do this. Maybe he got sick by traveling too fast on the roads. Or maybe he... Carrying that money was subject to robbers robbing him on the road. We don't know, but we know that Epaphroditus did risk his life, and there's a lot of heroes of the faith who've done that. They risk their lives for the Lord. They don't try to preserve their lives. They risk their lives. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30. In our next audio, we're going to start with Philippians 3 and do the first 11 verses. Paul, once again, will deal with legalists who are trashing the gospel message of righteousness through faith in Christ, just as he has to deal with the legalists in Galatia and the Corinthians and everywhere. He has to deal with them in Philippi too. So we'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you 
listened to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.